Valentine's Day is approaching. What better way to celebrate the holiday than with films that explore everything that make Valentine's Day great? murder, greed, corruption, adultery, and yes, most important of all, femme fatales. Sounds like it's time for episode 42 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your wrapped up in tissue paper with pink ribbons on it host, Howard Kasner. For my listeners, please like, follow, or comment. Today, I am happy to welcome two fellow podcasters, Richard and Amanda Kirkham of Father Daughter Team, who have chosen the Curtis Tanson neo-noir about 1950s Los Angeles, L.A. Confidential. And I have chosen the Billy Wilder, Raymond Chandler film noir classic about 1940s Los Angeles, Double Indemnity. Films that tell us that, yes, Valentine's Day can be the most fatal day of the year. So to begin, Richard and Amanda, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Well, I'm happy to start. I'm a blogger from Southern California who's now relocated to the Austin, Texas area. I'm the host of the Lambcast, which is our weekly podcast on the Lamb, the large association of movie blogs. And I've been writing about films for uh, just over a decade. Right now, I'm in the middle of a project where I'm sharing my list of favorite films. And a couple of those will be familiar to Howard, I'm sure. Let's hope so. (laughs) And Amanda? I'm a lifelong movie fan, sometimes movie blogger and podcaster. I do have a podcast that I started with my dad. We took a year-long hiatus from because, well, 2020. Born and raised in Southern California, relocated to the Austin area. Got a a blog, hollywoodconsumer.wordpress.com. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is L.A. Confidential. First, some information about the film. L.A. Confidential is an American film released in 1997. It was directed by Curtis Hansen and written by Hansen and Brian Helgeland, based on the 1990 novel of the same name by James Elroy, the third book in his L.A. Quartet series. It stars Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pierce, Kim Bassinger, James Cromwell, Danny DeVito, David Strathairn, Ron Rifkin, Graham Beckle, Paula Saganti, Simon Baker-Denny, Daryl Sandine, Jim Metzler, and Brenda Backey. The story takes place in Los Angeles in the 1950s and revolves around three police officers, an ambitious up-and-coming officer determined to follow in his late father's footsteps, but also stay clean a detective who falls for a call girl for an exclusive escort service, and a flamboyant detective whose main goal is to hobnob with the Hollywood elites and keep his status as an advisor on a dragnet-like television series. Their lives intersect as, in the wake of the downfall of mobster Mickey Cohen, they try to find the real murderers of a mass killing at a diner that is being swept under the rug by the authorities. To begin, why did you choose this film? I think we picked it because it features Los Angeles, and we are, of course, former residents of the City of Angels. It had the elements of a classic noir, although it's interesting the femme fatale turns out to be less fatale than some of the other characters in the film. I think we're just fans of living in the past in Los Angeles. Just about every film noir set in L.A. is something that I'd be happy to see. Amanda, did you think it was a good idea? 
Oh, well, very much the same reason. I love films set in Los Angeles. That was, I think, where we started thinking about, well, what would we want to see? And then as we were going through it, the noir aspect came up and we thought, oh, yeah, that would be good. And, and I hadn't seen LA Confidential in a long time. So I was looking forward to revisiting it. And yeah, I mean, you went through the cast. That's another selling point on it. <laughs> Being able to watch a film with all of those talented people in it, that was just really appealing. When did you first see it? I first saw it when it was released. That was one of those films that I anticipated a great deal. I think I've said it on some other podcasts. I'm a huge fan of Jerry Goldsmith, the composer, and this was a score that he did. And I think I actually had the score before I saw the movie. That would have been an opening weekend for me, I'm sure. I don't think I would have seen it in theaters. I think I would have been a little young. So at home at some point and on Laserdisc because of course. (laughs) And what did you all think upon seeing it? And then what do you think upon seeing it again? Well, I think it's a complicated story that unfolds pretty effectively. The three male leads are fantastic. Russell Crowe had been in films before in Hollywood, but this was like a a really big Hollywood production where he is one of the main leads. Uh, Guy Pearce, the same sort of thing. I think it's interesting that you have two Australian actors in the leads playing Americans in this. And Kevin Spacey, this was, I think, two years before he won the Academy Award for American Beauty. He was a rising star. He'd won an Oscar for The Usual Suspects two years before this. He was peaking at this moment. I think those characters are so different that every time you go with one of those stories, you can be sucked into what's going on. And the setting, David Strathairn's house is one of those dream mansions from the 50s that you say, oh yeah, this is where the rich and famous would live on a hillside. They'd have a pool like that, and they'd have had very early electric garage door openers, and look how it's laid out in modern tech for 1950 furniture. Production design, it's not in your face, but it's obvious. And I like the way they used all of the locations in the film. The Frolic Room, Formosa Cafe get prominently featured. Those are all places that I've either been in or been in front of on a regular basis. Amanda, what did you think upon first seeing it and then upon seeing it again? Well, I don't really remember my first viewing. I mostly remember being a fan because of the L.A. setting and because I really like all of the three main leads. I was really looking forward to rewatching it because I kind of had this memory of liking it, but not really remembering a whole bunch of the details. Watching it a second or third time, I think my dad's right. It's, it's a little bit complicated, but I think that it plays out pretty well it is a film that you really have to pay attention to. It's not something that you can passively watch. I'm impressed with all of the things that have already been mentioned. The movie looks great. The sets look great. One of the things that I love about films set in Los Angeles is when they actually film in Los Angeles and you can tell. I don't know that I've been to any of the places, but I've been by them. I've been in the areas that they're talking about. I got into noir later in my film education. I think I actually started with Chinatown or something, of course, another L.A.-based film. I love the elements. I love the gray characters. Nobody's black and white. People do bad things, even though they're set as the good guy. I was a little surprised at how complicated the story got. It does require a little bit of work from the audience, but if you're willing to put in the work, it's a pretty good viewing experience. For me, like Richard, I saw it when it first came out. And there are a lot of things I like about it, though I have to, at this point, give full disclosure. It's a movie that I want to like more than I do. 
some aspects of it that I like. I like Russell Crowe and Kevin Spacey. I love the art direction, the music, the cinematographer, the editing. And yes, the plot is very, very complicated, but not convoluted and very well written. In many ways, it's one of those films in which it's the screenplay that really makes it, even though here, Curtis Hansen does a very excellent job of directing it and giving a visual style to it. Some of the things that I don't like about it, we'll get into as it goes along. But what are some of your favorite scenes from the movie? I love the scene where Ed Exley is interrogating the three suspects in the Night Owl murders, and he's got them in three different rooms. He's turning on the intercom so they can hear what is being said by their partners. He doesn't really understand that he's drawing them out on a crime that they've committed that is not the one that he's investigating. There's a discovery that there is more to what's going on than what they originally thought, which ultimately is going to lead to the reveal to Exley, Bud White, and Vincennes that this crime is not been committed by the three suspects that have been arrested for it, and that there is, in fact, a frame-up that's going on. Guy Pierce, I don't think he's the strongest of the three leads, but that's his best scene, and I think he is definitely on screen with everybody in that scene. He matches up really well with them. All right, Amanda. It's more a collection of scenes. I like the scenes between Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger. Anytime that Guy Pierce and Kevin Spacey are in a scene together, I think that those two pairings are really good. I like that with Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger, they both show their vulnerable sides when they're with each other. I think it's an opportunity for both of them to show their acting skills. They've got good chemistry. She's a really interesting character, and I like that you get little bits of her background here and there in those scenes. makes some of the later interactions that much more heartbreaking between them. Same with Kevin Spacey and Guy Pierce. They could have been paired up really early in the film and then it could have been like a buddy cop film. The scene where they uh, confront the guy and I forget who the actress is in the bars. Oh, Brandon uh, Turner. <laughs> he's accusing her of uh, being a prostitute that's been cosmetic surgery to look like her. So yes, not necessarily a specific scene, more the pairings and, and collections of moments between those characters. I certainly agree with the Lana Turner scene, though in a way, which we'll get into, it shows one of the issues I have with the film. But that is definitely one of my favorite scenes when he says, that is Lana Turner. <laughs> yeah, I noticed this time he is smiling in the background because he knows it's going to happen. Like a small hint right before it all gets revealed that Guy Pierce's character has got it wrong. I like the scene where Matt Reynolds, played by Simon Baker Denny, now he's Simon Baker, is arrested. He's taken out into the street, and you see the movie theater in the distance, though that's not really a movie theater. In real life, that's the crossroads of the world made to look like a movie theater. I thought that was exceptionally well-directed, exceptionally well-acted. I don't really like Simon Bacon very much as an actor, but I think this movie is probably the best thing he's ever done. I like it when he is set up, the scene at the Dragnet Live shooting where Simon Baker is telling Danny DeVito he's going to be having sex with the councilman later on. And then I also like the plot turn of Rollo Tomasi. I thought that was one of the cleverest and smartest aspects of the plot when James Cromwell asked Ed Exley if he's ever heard of Rollo Tomasi. And I went, oh, that's not good. <laughs> you just, you just blew that. <laughs> he just that. gave himself away. It's interesting because James Cromwell's character, Dudley Smith, gives himself away in two great scenes. The first scene that he gives himself away in is the big twist about two-thirds of the way through. I don't know if we want to spoil that, but let's just say Kevin Spacey doesn't follow the rest of the film. 
That uh, was that, a little shocking moment. I didn't see it until just before it happened. And then, of course, when he mentions the name Rolo Tomasi, and it's like, once again, he's revealed himself, but this time he doesn't know that he's revealed himself. And I think that's a great moment. Some of the things that don't work for me about the film, and I can tell that they actually do work for you guys, is it's close to when you said that Guy Pierce's best scene is when he's doing the interrogation. I think Guy Pierce is absolutely terrible in this film. At the same time, I don't think it's his fault. His character has no personality. It is totally flat and one-dimensional. And Guy Pierce, who's a very good actor, can't really do anything if there's not a character there to play. He's not one of those actors who can just be Guy Pierce on the screen and it's going to work. I also think Kim Basinger is terrible. I never understood her Oscar nomination, much less her win. But this also leads me to another issue, and that's with the fleur-de-lis escort service. One aspect of the film I don't find believable is that Vincennes doesn't know what this is. He is the guy that is involved in Hollywood. He's involved in the movie industry. He's involved in all the gossip. He's going to know what this is. Part of this might be on me because this place actually existed. And Garson Kanan writes about it in a memoir where he visited it. It goes even farther than in the movie. Not only were they supposed to look like these actresses, they were supposed to sound like, talk like. They had to know everything about this character and be them when they're with these people. Not only that, if any of the actresses went on location and were not in Hollywood, in Los Angeles, they were not available at the service. <laughs> and even in the film, nobody seems to act like it's all that big a secret. David's just there and just comes straight out and tells Bud White what the escort service is like. So does Kim Basinger tell Bud White. And I'm saying, gee, for an escort service that nobody ever hears about, people seem to talk about it with quite regularity. And the other aspect that I have is that Kim Basinger doesn't remotely resemble Veronica Lake. She doesn't sound like Veronica Lake. Even Lana Turner, who is supposed to be Lana Turner, doesn't look or sound like Lana Turner. So I always thought that aspect of the film didn't quite work for me as well. So there's sort of my rant. on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can be a minority of one. That's okay. Uh, obviously, there are people who disagree. I do think that Kim Basinger is a little flat sometimes, but she has good chemistry with Russell Crowe. Her best scenes are exactly the kinds of ones where she is revealing something about herself to Crowe's character, but not really revealing the stuff about the agency that she works for, but really about herself. I like the way the film mixes historical information with the fictional story that's going on, uh, including the fleur-de-lis, the show Behind the Badge, which is basically Dragnet, the riots that they had in Los Angeles with the Hispanics and the cops. There's a little bit of everything that is a grain of truth in it somewhere in the story. It may not all be historically accurate, but it feels that way because so much of it is a part of the fabric of the times. Since you mentioned that, this is a great segue to another, what I find a very interesting issue. This is not a negative I have about the film, but I think it's a very interesting aspect of the film. Have you all seen Los Angeles Plays itself? I have not seen it. I think I saw a trailer for it. Everybody should see Los Angeles Plays itself. I've seen it four times, and I'm ready to see it again. <laughs> Basically, it's an analysis by Tom Anderson, who made the film, that looks at how Los Angeles has played itself in movies over the years. He uses tons of scenes from films 
which she never got permission to use. So it can never be shown except at film festivals or things like that, because she can never charge tickets for it at a regular theater. But it is a brilliant analysis of it. He incorporates three films into an essay on the idea that somehow along the way, Los Angeles has gotten to become this location of nothing but crime, corruption, (laughs) and evil, things of that nature. And he thinks one of the reasons why is three films. These are Chinatown, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and L.A. Confidential, because they have both truth and false events in them. But everybody thinks everything about them are true, when in fact only certain parts of them are true. For example, in Chinatown, the attempt to divert water was done in 1905. It was not done during the 30s in order to build up the valley. Basically, Robert Town took this incident that happened in 1905, moved it to the 1930s, and now everybody thinks that this happened, and it didn't. They also talk about a dam bursting, which also happened someplace else and much earlier. In Who Framed Framed Roger Rabbit, it's the idea that the car companies all became this great cabal to get rid of the public transport. Yeah. When in reality, people didn't really like that train system anymore. It was built up in order to get people down to the war plants during 1940s. So when the war was over and the war plants were closed, there wasn't as much need for this. And everybody wanted cars. So there wasn't this huge, big, corrupt cabal behind everything to build freeways. Everybody wanted freeways. And the city council went with freeways and got rid of the public transportation system. And the people voted for the bond issue. They voted to pay for the freeways. And now you have in L.A. Confidential, it starts off with something that really happened, which were the Christmas riots. And you have the Fleur de Lis, Hush Hush magazine, which was based on a real magazine, and you have Dragnet. But this idea that there was corruption in the police department to take over Mickey Cohen's organized crime is totally fiction. That never happened. And they also didn't need to blackmail council people to put in a freeway. No, they were all for it. And let's make sure all of our listeners know that Salieri didn't kill Mozart. (laughs) As far as we know, but no, you're right. (laughs) But he does claim that movies like this, even I think that he also includes Double Indemnity, that L.A. has become film noir. That's what makes Los Angeles Los Angeles, when in reality, it really, really isn't. Yeah, well, Los Angeles is frequently thought of as a company town because the Hollywood industry dominated it so much. And to some degree, it's understandable because that's what it's most identified with. But if you took the population of L.A. County and figured out how many of them have a connection to the film industry, you'd discover it's relatively microscopic. It's in very, very small. <laughs> yeah. It's the reputation that matters, apparently. <laughs> We also were talking about the house where David Strathairn's character lived. That's another thing that he talks about in Los Angeles space itself. Patchett's home is the Lovell House, and it's an extremely famous piece of architecture designed by Richard Neutra. He says that there are all these incredible modern and postmodern pieces of architecture. They're absolutely beautiful. But in movies, only bad guys live there. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So true. I like it. I like it. One of the things that I noticed this time is that the character of Ed Exley is presented as good or self-righteous. But at first you think it's because he's morally a good person. But I don't find that he's good because he's morally good. He's good because he's ambitious. And he doesn't want to do anything that if he runs for office, they're going to be able to come back and find it and use it against him. Yeah, I think he's a by-the-book kind of guy for 
that kind of reason. He's a political animal. And Dudley says it at the beginning of the film when he's actually going to be promoted to the position of lieutenant. Being a detective is not what his skill is. He should be pursuing a different line. But I think that Exley sees the future, and that is the media and the fame that comes along with being on TV, and that's where he's going to power. They don't have a, a cold relationship, and they actually develop a better relationship with Vincennes later, but I think he's got kind of a envious relationship there because he sees himself as being the golden boy that ought to be seen in the media, on TV, at the press conference, and, you know, getting the Medal of Honor for his valor in those sorts of things, being the youngest to achieve the level of captain or whatever the promotion is that he gets in the film, and, of course, trying to live up to his father. I think that that's another big part of it is he's got daddy issues. <laughs> yes, Bud White has mommy issues. He has daddy issues. And I, in a minute, I'm going to talk about Jack Bassin, who I suggest should have had certain other issues. But Amanda, I think you were going to say something. This ties into the whole question that each of the three detectives answer at one point. Why did you originally want to become a law enforcement officer? And Ed Exley originally wanted to become one because he wanted justice for his father and to fight that. And then he even says, along the way, I got lost and overambitious with Bud. It's clearly he has mommy issues and has a lot of information from his past that he doesn't say explicitly, but probably influenced the fact that he wanted to become a cop. And along the way, again, got lost. He keeps beating himself up thinking that he's not smart enough and he's just a meathead and he's let himself believe that. With Jack, he doesn't really know. He doesn't remember why he got into it. And he got caught up in the fame and the adoration and all of that. And so I think it's interesting that each of them pursued this career for more noble intentions and each of them got lost to something along the way, whether it was ambition or fame or getting yourself pigeonholed into a particular role and allowing yourself to be directed that way. I do have to admit that the character of Ed Exley is incredibly brilliant. Whenever he does something, whenever he takes control of the situation, he has this way of resolving it that not only allows him to be the good person in it, but to arrange everything where he comes out on top. Yeah, that's true. Even after shotgunning Dudley in the back. <laughs> right. Which yeah. I'm going, why are you waiting? Just tell him. But when it comes to Jack Vincent, and I thought this the very first time I saw it, the one aspect of the plot I didn't really buy was when Jack Vincent is goes to check on the Matt Reynolds, the Simon Baker character at the motel. I never quite understood why he did it. He feels guilty about something, but he's never felt guilty about a thing in his life. I always thought that was a bit forced. And I thought the big mistake was that Jack Vincennes should have been gay and closeted. And that's why he goes after the Matt Reynolds character. He feels an affinity for what this young man is going through, wants to save him. I don't know that your idea is a bad one. It might very well have worked. And I've never read the original book, so there may be more to it than that. But there's only so much you can put in a movie. <laughs> In many ways, I do think this is a movie that is more known for its screenplay than anything else. They really cut down and focused the book. There were eight main characters in the book. They reduced those to three. They only focused on the plot line concerning the three police officers. What do you think of the screenplay? I think it's pretty efficient for a story that is complicated. It does give us moments where we can see how they connect to earlier points. It's thoughtful. It's been put together very effectively. When we 
see what the connection is to the murders of the local mobsters that have been you know trying to continue mickey cohen's enterprises we hear about the heroine and we're going well what's the connection between them and when buzz meeks shows up under the house Suddenly we start to see, okay, this is a puzzle that's coming together. And sometimes the puzzle only comes together in the last act of the movie. I like the fact that the puzzle is coming together as we're watching the movie. Maybe we'll be surprised at something that pops up, but we can see that there is a legitimate connection between all of these points. And it's not suddenly going to be a completely different explanation at the end. It's just going to be a clearer explanation with some surprising elements to it. I would agree. I think what's interesting is that we've talked about how complicated it is. I think that it really, really expects the audience to pay attention from the very first moment. They give so much background in the opening credits and if you're not paying attention from that point forward you're gonna be lost but i like that it's a little bit more challenging one of the things that i was thinking about when watching it this time around was bud's partner i didn't really remember any of that from the first time i saw it he's actually a pretty important background character for all of this he's one of the keys to the yeah know the plot you feel like he's written out of the picture at the beginning but the truth is he's killed off at the beginning but he really has a lot to do with the actual story and what's happening this is to say that i think the screenplay is smart and asks that its audience be smart as well the two writers curtis hansen and hegelin they got elroy's approval here are a couple of quotes from elroy he had seen hansen's films the bedroom window and bad influence they said that he found hansen a competent and interesting storyteller which I guess he thought was a compliment, but to me, sounds awfully like damning with faint praise. I don't think I would like to be called, oh, he's a competent storyteller. But he didn't think the book could be made into a film until he talked to Hansen. And he said, they preserved the basic integrity of the book and its main themes. Brian and Curtis took a work of fiction that had eight plot lines, reduced those to three, and retained the dramatic force of three men working out their destiny. Don't want to take a shot at Curtis Hansen. I remember years ago watching, I think it was Jodie Foster talking about seeing L.A. Confidential. And she says, I couldn't believe I was looking forward to seeing a Curtis Hansen film. He'd made those melodramatic thrillers like uh, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and River Wild. Here he is doing this, and this is definitely outside of what he had been doing. He stepped up, and I thought he did a great job on this. They were having a bit of a trouble finding someone to do the screenplay. And Hegelin, who was a big fan of Elroy's, just wanted it so bad that I think he tracked down Hansen and just said, I want to write this movie. Both of them took off time making money on movies, especially Hegelin. He wrote seven different revisions for free because he just wanted to do this. And I think it does show it's probably the best thing Curtis Hansen has ever done, but it's probably the best screenplay that Curtis Hansen has ever had. Yeah. Well, with that, here is some more information about the movie. LA Confidential was a major critical and commercial success. It cost $35 million to make, and it grossed $126 million. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, picture director, supporting actress, adapted screenplay, cinematographer, editing, art direction, score, and sound. It won adapted screenplay and supporting actress. It was nominated for 12 BAFTAs. But this was the year of Titanic, which won in every other category. LA Confidential was nominated. In 2015, the United States Library of Congress selected LA Confidential for preservation in the National Film Registry as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. 
The National Society of Film Critics also ranked it the year's best film, and Curtis Hansen was voted best director. New York Film Critics Circle voted it year's best film in addition to directing and screenplay. Los Angeles Film Critics and the National Review also voted it the year's best film. Because of this, it's one of three films in history to sweep the Big Four Critics Awards, alongside Schindler's List and The Social Network. The Victory Motel was one of the only purpose-built sets constructed on a flat stretch of the Inglewood oil field in Culver City. Bracken's house is at 501 Wilcox Avenue in the affluent Hancock Park neighborhood. It required a 75000 renovation to transform it. And Tom Anderson talks a bit about that as well, the Spanish-style influence, which is my favorite architectural contribution that L.A. has made. And it's the screen debut of Simon Baker, who would go on to do The Mentalist. I believe he was Australian as well. Well, with that, let's get to my selection, and that is Double Indemnity. First, some information about the film. Double Indemnity is an American film released in 1944. It was directed by Billy Wilder and written by Wilder and Raymond Chandler, based on the book of the same name by the notorious hard-boiled mystery writer James N. Kane, which originally appeared as a series in Liberty Magazine in 1936. It stars Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, Edward G. Robinson, Porter Hall, Gene Heather, Tom Powers, Byron Barr, and Richard Gaines. The story revolves around an insurance salesman who becomes involved with the wife of one of his clients. She seduces him into helping her take out an accident insurance policy on her husband without him knowing it and then killing him, collecting a double indemnity policy by faking his death by a fall off a train. But things do not go as planned. Of course not. Film noir. So what do you think of the pairing of the two films? I think it's an interesting pairing because, like I said earlier, you do have femme fatales, but they are almost polar opposites. Kim Basinger's character in the long run turns out to be somewhat heroic and admirable, despite her profession, whereas Phyllis is clearly the villainess in this piece, and she uses all of her wiles. Not like Fred McMurray's character is innocent in any of this. He's as guilty as sin. But the matching of the two, it's like putting fire with gasoline. That's the combination. I think it's the matching of the female characters with the male characters in the first film that creates the sparks that are going on there. And you've got the same sort of thing going on in this film, but in a different direction. This is a destructive relationship, whereas... In the first film, I think we were looking at, strange as it sounds, it's actually a more constructive relationship. And it has a happier ending. That is very true. What about you, Amanda? I agree. When we were watching LA Confidential, I was like, kind of ends on a happy note. That's not really typical for this genre. We watched Double Indemnity and then LA Confidential, and it's like seeing the original and then the reimagining or the updated take. I hadn't seen Double Indemnity before. I was quite excited that that was what you chose because it meant that I finally got to sit down and watch it. And it's classic in all the ways that you think of classic. You've got clever story and unlikable characters and great chemistry between all of the actors. It's very classic noir with the femme fatale, the voiceover and the lighting and everything. Really interesting, like I said, to watch Double Indemnity first and then LA Confidential because you see where LA Confidential is pulling some of that noir aspects and seeing it in its original form in Double Indemnity. So you just recently saw it. Richard, when did you first see it? I'm sure that I saw it as a kid, but don't remember it very well. I know that I saw it in a revival theater 
probably in the early 70s, 73, 74. The Rialto Theater in South Pasadena was a revival theater in those years, and I'm sure it was on a double bill with some other film noir at the time. I have no idea when I first saw it. I probably didn't see it until the 1970s. For full disclosure, I think this is one of the great American films and one of the top five film noirs of all time. So I've seen it quite a few times. What are some of your favorite scenes from the movie? I like the scene, of course, where Walter Neff first meets Phyllis in that house. You were talking about the houses before the Spanish design. That house, it's still got to be there. I swear I've driven by that place a hundred times. I agree. (laughs) Now I must have gone by at some point. But yes, it still is there. It's not where it is. They say it is in the movie. It's in Beechwood Canyon. But when he enters the house and she's upstairs in just a towel, he starts drooling right then. Almost think of the cartoon where the guy turns into a wolf and howls when he sees the femme fatale. He starts licking his lips almost immediately. And then she comes downstairs a little bit later after having gotten dressed and he notices the anklet. He's obviously been eyeballing her from head to toe and that's the last thing that he saw and the first thing that he mentions to her. And then they've got that cross dialogue that they go back and forth on. Like they've known each other a hundred years. Suppose I, well, suppose you, suppose I. I like the staccato way that they talk to each other to start this dance of plotting the death of her husband. To me, that's the best part of the film. That and the fact that Fred McMurray is narrating the whole thing on a dictaphone and Edward G. Robinson is eventually going to be listening in. I like that too. And that means it's your turn, Amanda. (laughs) I like the actual crime sequence. I like that they hint at things before and then they actually show you it. Everything actually goes pretty much according to plan. And I like when he's on the train and how he maneuvers himself so that people will think that it's it's her husband, but they won't necessarily get a good look at his face. And the whole exchange on the back of the, the train car where he's trying to figure out how to get the guy to go away so that he can do this thing. I think that's a very tense sequence because I didn't know how it played out. I'm going, well, how does he do it? You know, how does it work? I think it's just a very good tension building sequence. There's two interesting tidbits about that scene. One is that when the car won't start, that wasn't in the original script. They had filmed for the day. They were done. They were packing up when Billy Walder went to his car and his car wouldn't start. And he jumped out of his car, called everybody back, and they put in this scene where the car doesn't start. The other interesting thing about it that I really noticed this time is there's only like two moments in the film where they violate the idea of Fred McMurray is dictating this and everything is seen from his perspective. They have a couple of scenes that he didn't see. And this is one of them where I think they very brilliantly don't show Fred McMurray killing Mr. Diedrichson, but they show her face and where she is very cold. And then at the very end, she slightly smiles. And this is something that the Walter Neff character could not have seen. So it violates the structure, but it's a wonderful, wonderful moment. My favorite scene is when Barbara Stanwyck is called into the insurance company. The head man there confronts her and suggests that her husband committed suicide. And she brilliantly reacts to it. She just automatically turns the table on him, just makes a laughing stock out of him. It also has one of my favorite in exchanges when the man in charge says that witness from the train was his name. And Martin Key says his name was Jackson, probably still is. (laughs) 
But this is a, a movie like L.A. Confidential, where in many ways, though it's incredibly well-directed, I'm not going to take anything away from Billy Walder, we really think of the screenplay. What is your reaction to the screenplay? How do you feel about it? I like the fact that we're seeing this from after the event. It's all recall. We know that the plot line has played out, and now we're just going back and reliving that. Billy Wilder does the same thing a few years later in Sunset Boulevard. Joe Gillis is dead, floating in the pool at the beginning of Sunset Boulevard. So clearly we're going to have to go back and relive what they went through. And I just think it's an interesting idea to have it on the dictaphone, which was probably pretty unique for the time period, that people would be using that technology to record themselves and pass on information in that manner. That's the equivalent of maybe somebody recording a YouTube video right now, or posting it on FaceTime so that everybody could watch it as they're confessing to the world. The plot, the whole idea of how to kill the husband I think is interesting. It gets a little complicated what they have to go through to do all that, but you understand what's going on there. I like Keys as the Greek chorus in the background, denying that anything went wrong and then convincing himself that something is rotten there and then beginning to focus in on what could have happened and figuring it out. Basically gives us a thumbnail sketch of things that we've seen and reminds us of what had happened from a different perspective. And Barton Keys is the one who comes up with the first first fault in their plan when he says this guy broke his leg but didn't try to collect right. on his accident insurance. Mm -hmm. What about you, Amanda? How do you feel about the screenplay? I like that you bring up the broken leg because I didn't even think about that until he brings it up later. He says, why didn't he? And that's a really good insight into that character to show, one, how smart he is, that he's looking at this whole thing and he figures that part out. And you know that that's his job is to investigate false claims, figure out what's going on there. I think it's very classic noir style to have the voiceover talking about how it all went down. Sometimes that can be a bit, what's the word? Bit of a cliche, some people think. There's a big thing today. It's one of these stupid, stupid rules that people try to claim about films is don't do voiceover. And I'm going, some of the greatest films have been done in voiceover. I have no idea what you're talking about. But yeah. some people do have that. It can be a little overbearing. And I don't think that's the case here. I like the flash forward, flashback. Here we are at the beginning. Here's what's happening. Okay, here's what happened to get us to this point. And again, I think you're pointing out the one area where if we're supposed to be assuming that everything that we're seeing is something that he's seen and maybe you could pick out a couple areas where it's like well he wouldn't have really have seen her face but I love that whole sequence like you said her little smile at the end but I like the screenplay I think it's interesting and clever crime to be committing I like that he's an insurance salesman so he knows about this particular clause that could get them more money I like his realization after he goes through with it he gets nervous that they might get caught but then he starts to regret it only when he sees the impact that it's had on the daughter and also when he realizes that maybe he's been played because the daughter starts to plant a seed of doubt in his mind that he was in control this whole time and realizing that no, Phyllis was. One of the things you said, though, did make me think about this one small bit where Walter Neff listens to a recording of Barton Key's thoughts on the murder. And I remember this when I first saw it, that it shocked me, that even though Barton Keyes and Walter Neff are really good friends, almost from the beginning, Barton Keyes did entertain the idea that Walter Neff was in on it and investigated it. Mm -hmm. I found that real surprising. 
the basic plot was based on an actual murder that happened in 1927, but it happened in Queens, New York. Though I think the major difference is that the boyfriend was not an insurance salesman. They actually just got the husband to take out a big insurance policy with the double indemnity clause, and they were caught almost immediately. It was a big, big crime at the time. The man was given the electric chair. A reporter was able to sneak a photo of it and became the most famous news photo of the 1920s. And I can't remember the movie, but there's a pre-code movie that actually dramatizes that. Charles Brackett, who was Billy Walder's writing partner at the time, worked on the treatment, but he thought the whole movie was too sordid and he did not want to write the screenplay. In fact, it was the screenplay that nobody thought would ever be able to be made into a movie because the, the Breen office said, there's just no way we're never going to uh, let this through. But they did manage to come up with it. He tried to get James and Kane to work on the screenplay with him, but he was working for another studio. And then they got Raymond Chandler. They made some changes from the book. In the book, they actually get away with it. And they're on a boat going to Hawaii. And they don't know that the other one is on the boat, but they run into each other and they decide to kill themselves. And they jump off the boat. But the Breen office said, you can't do that because you can't have suicide as a way to resolve a plot point or a crime in a movie. So instead, they have them end like this. And the original ending, which was shot, was Fred McMurray in The Electric Chair. The Breen office didn't like it. And Billy Walder realized it actually was a much stronger emotional ending to have it where Edward Reed Robinson comes on at the end when Fred McMurray is dictating the story. Most of the dialogue is Chandler. Billy Walder wanted to use the dialogue from the book, but Chandler knew instantly that it wasn't very good dialogue. Billy Walder actually had to have actors come in and read the dialogue from the book to realize, oh, this really isn't very good dialogue. So most of that dialogue is pure Raymond Chandler. The character of Walter Neff was originally named Walter Ness, but there actually was a man living in Beverly Hills named Walter Ness, who was actually an insurance salesman. And the original name of the Diedrichsons in the book is Nerlinger. Most people do think that this is a movie that really vastly improved the book. I think you either like Kane or you don't like Kane. Ray Chandler hated Kane, thought he was a terrible, terrible writer. But I do have to say that I think the direction and the look of the movie is also great. Are you a fan of Billy Wilder's? What do you think of his direction here? I've always been a fan of Billy Wilder. And let's face it, if you were to look at a list of the great movies of the 20th century, I think you would find a dozen of his on the list. It's just incredible, the stuff that he's responsible for. And in this particular case, it's a lot different than some of the things that you would expect. Although, like I said earlier, it's a lot like... Sunset Boulevard in the story structure. The direction is soaking up that whole atmosphere and time period. You've seen Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. They use scenes from this in that movie to parody because people know those scenes so well. The whole thing in the grocery store where they're meeting to be able to talk without anybody else being aware that they know each other. I think that that's a clever idea, especially, again, looking at the time period. Phone calls would be easier to track. People don't write letters anymore, and I don't know that it would be very practical to be writing notes. That puts your stuff right there in physical form for any investigator to find. So how do you do this? Well, you arrange an innocuous meeting. We're just going to bump into each other every day at the grocery store. If I'm there, great, and we'll talk. If not, well, see you the next day. I think that that's a, a clever invention. So there's a lot of stuff in the story that works well, and it's shown pretty well. 
choosing to shoot Phyllis as she's coming down the stairs from the knee down. I think that that's one of those director's choices that works really well. The way they deliver their lines, the final decision that you mentioned to change the ending from the being in the death house to the way it does end, I think that works much better. And so that was a good choice on their part. Today, the car not starting, I think I've seen that in other movies, but I'll bet that this was a first there. So it's another one of those Billy Wilder inventions. I do wonder about that too, because when you do see it, you go, oh, that old cliche. But yeah, it might have very well been the first time it was used and then now everybody does it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I don't know that I would say I'm a Billy Wilder fan just because I don't think I've seen quite a lot of his work. You mentioned choosing to focus on her ankles as she's walking down the stairs, choosing to not show him actually kill the husband, but to focus on her. I think there are a lot of really good directing choices. I don't know if they're necessarily for the style or for those censorship things, but they They, were. They had to use a bigger towel that they were planning to the first time. Yeah. So she got to have a big towel there. (laughs) The scene that I mentioned that I like, the going through the train, that's all tension building and that's all because of how it's directed how he's moving and where the cameras are focusing on and the way that the background actors are in the set and how they're interacting with the main actors i think the directing here is very good Billy Wilder, of course, is a refugee from Germany. He left in the 1930s as the Nazis rose to power. I think he lost all of his family and the Holocaust. But in this movie, I think some people say this is where he first brought his background of German expressionism into film. And this German expressionism is one of the aspects of film noir that makes film noir film noir. This use of shadow and darkness and lightness. The cinematographer was Jennifer Seitz, who worked on other Balder films like Sunset Boulevard. It wasn't the first time that they would do things like shoot through window slats and it would look like bars in a jail. They did something similar like this in The Maltese Falcon. And then they would throw little pieces of aluminum foil up in the air so that it would reflect like dust. But I think, yes, he is one of America's best directors, especially of the golden age of Hollywood, one of the best film noir directors of the time. The score by Nicholas Rosa, of course, also contributes to the story. I'm a big fan of Rosa. There was another piece about the direction I thought was very interesting is when he comes in at the beginning to the insurance building, he is in the upper mezzanine and looks down on these rows and rows and rows of desks, which really contributes an interesting mood to the whole thing. It's all empty, but it's very reflective of the apartment. Yes, I was thinking of that also. 20 years later, whatever it is, we get Jack Lemmon (laughs) buried in the crowd of people sitting at tables with typewriters doing the kind of work that nobody ever sees. If we're talking about the performances, I think Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray are great in this movie. Edward G. Robinson steals the movie every time he's on screen. He is so great in this. Being a smart guy, being a friend who's also a little bit superior, but also judgmental about his friend. He offers him a job that he thinks he'd be good at, which is basically finding people like himself. That's insightful and clever and ironic all at the same time. Edward G. Robinson delivers that kind of performance that makes you think, yeah, this is a real guy. I do like the fact that there's something there that he can't get past that's not going to sit well with him. And I think he conveys that really well. Amanda. I agree. And you mentioned the offering him the job. That's another scene that I really like. I like how he is 
pretty much oblivious to what is happening on the phone call. And he's like, oh, no, I'll just, you know, I'll just stay here. You know, you finish up your call. And I think that's a really good performance from both of them because the one is trying to be clever in how he's communicating to the other end of the line without being obvious about it. The other is, like I said, sitting in the background waiting around to talk to him. Doesn't even really know what's going on. Doesn't think anything of it. When you get the playback of his thoughts on the whole investigation and immediately dismissing his friend, you think back to that scene. Of course he wouldn't think anything's amiss because he's just come in to offer this guy this job and tell him how smart he thinks he is and how good he thinks this would be. So the idea that he would be doing anything remotely wrong right in front of him doesn't even occur to him until later when everything starts to fall apart and be revealed. I certainly agree that Robinson in many ways steals the show. I also think Stanwyck is absolutely great. For me, Fred McMurray has always been the weakest part. I don't think he's as strong a dramatic actor as he is a comedian. He's a very, very funny comedian. But it's interesting to note that nobody wanted to do this film. None of the three actors wanted to do it. Stanwyck didn't want to do it because she was afraid of playing such an unlikable character. And Bailey Walder said, well, what are you, a mouse or an actress? And she said, well, I hope I'm an actress. And he says, well, then do the film. Robinson was reluctant to do it because he was a leading man up until this movie. He had reached that age where he began to realize, well, I'm not going to be the leading man anymore. And he realized he was going to have to start taking major supporting roles. And the role is different than in the book. In the book, this is a minor role. He's just a buddy of Frederick Murray's character character Walter Neff. He doesn't really play that big a part, but they really built it up, which I think was a very smart thing to do. But he decided to take it. And one of the things that helped is he was going to be paid exactly the same amount as Frederick Murray and Barbara Stanwyck, even though he was third build. And Fred McMurray, they could not find anybody to do this film. Nobody wanted to play this role. So Billy Walter went to Fred McMurray and, and Fred McMurray says, are you kidding? I'm not an actor. I'm a comedian. I can't do this role. But Billy Walter kept nagging and nagging and going after him. But at this time, both McMurray and Stanmer were the number one paid actors and actress in the U.S. Stanwyck was also the highest paid woman in America at the time. But Fred McMurray's contract was coming up and he was going to have to renegotiate. And he was really good friends with Carol Lombard. Carol Lombard had learned how to negotiate the hard way. And she taught Fred McMurray how to get the best possible contract he could get. So the studio acquiesced to what Fred McMurray wanted, but they decided to punish him by forcing him to do double indemnity, thinking it would flop. And he would learn his lesson, when in reality, it's the studio that learned their lesson. That'll teach him. (laughs) With that, here's some more information about the film. It cost $980,000 to make, and it made $5 million. A Double Dimnity was nominated for seven Academy Awards. It did not win any. It was nominated for picture, director, actress, screenplay, cinematographer, music, and sound. This was the year of Going My Way. And Mulder went to the awards. He expected to win, even though the studio hadn't been backing it. And this was at the time when studios had a great deal of control over who their workers voted for. Going My Way started winning and started winning until Wilder figured out, oh, it doesn't look like he's going to win. When McCary won Best Director and was making his way up to the stage, Wilder tripped him on the way. (laughs) He then went on to the next year to win Best Picture for The Lost Weekend. The movie was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the U.S. Library of Congress in 1992. Double Indemnity was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. And the scene that always interested me and bothered me, Phyllis is listening at Neff's door as he talks 
house with keys. The door opens into the hallway and Phyllis hides behind the door. And I'm going, no door opens into the hallway. And in fact, not only does no door enter in the hallway, the reason why it doesn't is it's not allowed by building codes, even back then. But as a friend of mine said, Walder does use that very, very cleverly. Exteriors of the Diedrichsen house were shot at a 3,200 square foot Spanish colonial revival house built in 1927. The house is at 6301 Quebec Drive in Beechwood Canyon. Raymond Chandler has a cameo as a man reading a magazine outside Key's office. And this is significant because other than a snippet from a home movie, there is no other footage of Chandler known anywhere. And Douglas Spencer, who's Walter's office mate, He's uncredited here, but is perhaps best known as the reporter in the movie The Thing from Another World with the famous line, watch the skies, watch the skies. Well, with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. I chose two films. They're very contemporary in the 20 teens, but they're both LA based, which is why I chose them. One is The Nice Guys. It's another Russell Crowe film. It's set in the 70s in Los Angeles, but it's a more comedic take, but it is a detective buddy film. It's got that LA vibe, the detective vibe, and Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling are just perfect together. And the other film I chose is Nightcrawler. Again, set in LA, sort of has the crime element because it follows a video production guy who films crimes or crashes or footage for the news and it's a great performance from Jake Gyllenhaal. I like both of those films for the performances and for the fact that they're set in LA. Uh, Russell Crowe said that there were two movies he made that he really wished it had a sequel and one was LA Confidential and the other one was The Nice Guys. And you Richard? I've got to mention Chinatown. We've already talked about it a little bit, so that won't be officially on my list, of course, but Chinatown is probably the definitive L.A. neo-noir film, and it's a 70s film, so of course I'm focused on the 70s for the most part on my original project. I'll mention two films, one from the 80s and one from the 70s. One from the uh, 80s is Tequila Sunrise with Kurt Russell, Mel Gibson, and Michelle Pfeiffer as kind of a... uh, three-way love affair. It's a crime film, it's a drug film, but it has a lot of those elements that we like of stylized Los Angeles. And one that is much more traditionally in that genre uh, is from the 70s, Night Moves, the Arthur Penn film featuring Gene Hackman. I think the story's a little bit convoluted, but it starts off in L.A. Gene Hackman's been my favorite actor forever, and it's got some great character actors. There's an interesting twist. I'm not sure that it all makes sense in the end, but that's okay. Neither does the big sleep. That has one of my favorite lines of the time, when the guy is looking at Melanie Griffith very lustfully. And he says, there ought to be a law. And Gene Hackman says, there There is. is. (laughs) As for me, I'm going to go with three film noirs, three of my favorite. The first, as you mentioned, was The Big Sleep, Howard Hawks' 1946 pairing of Bogey and Bacall in a Raymond Chandler mystery. It's a rare film noir with a happy ending, though that's different from the book. It's a brilliant film with a plot that makes sense as it goes along, but afterwards it's impossible to retell. I've never been able to tell anybody the plot. Out of the Past is Jacques Tournier's 1947 film with Robert Mitchum playing a former private eye hiding out under a different name in a small town running a gas station. When the henchman of a former mobster boss client runs into him, Mitchum is drawn back into a former life and a femme fatale he thought he'd left behind. And finally, Murder My Sweet, Edward Dimitriuk's 1944 adaptation of Raymond Chandler's Farewell My Lovely. The name changed because Dick Powell was a crooner from the 1930s. He was now 
Carlisle playing the lead and the studio didn't want anyone to think it was a musical. Where a huge lunk of a dumb ex-con, sort of think Bud White in many ways, hires Philip Marlowe to find his Velma. So what is next? What should we be looking for? What are you guys working on? Well, as host of the Lambcast, every week I've got something new coming up, and I wish that we had more new movies coming out, but we're finding ways to fill the time. Today we had a show that I recorded that is full of new members of the Lamb, so it's an introductory show. Coming up, we have the movie of the month, which was my choice, and I'm sorry, Howard, that you didn't get on the show because I know that you would love to talk about this film. La Samurai is the one that won for movie of the month, so we'll be talking about that next week. Amanda? I don't know that I have anything really coming up on the blog. We're hoping to get back into our Catching Up podcast. We took a hiatus for about a year, uh, and we're hoping to get back into that in the next month. But the thing that I am working on is I have a friend who's hosting a virtual film festival, and I'm a, a judge for it. Right now, we're in the second deadline phase. I think the final deadline is in May, so there are a couple of time frames to consider there. That's at filmfreeway.com slash what will they think of next uh, that's the name of the film festival what will they think of next and so I'm looking forward to that I'm going to put a post up on my blog to kind of encourage people to submit if anybody has a, a short film that they are interested in submitting well fantastic this sounds very exciting as for me I'll go through my usual litany I'm a screenwriter and screenplay consultant so I have a Howard Kasner Facebook consultation page my blog is called Rantings and Ravings I have two books of short stories published on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, fantasy, and horror short stories. The second edition of my screenwriting book, or Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader, is also available on Amazon. And I am a amateur photographer, and you can find that on Instagram. The previous podcast was with writer, producer, director, and novelist Dwayne Alexander-Smith, where we discussed Tootsie and another Billy Wilder film, Some Like It Hot, two films about men dressing as women and trying to pass. I just posted that today. And the next podcast will be with actor, writer, director, producer Michelle Ellen, a returning guest where we will discuss The Truman Show and Dark City. Both films about a central character who begins to suspect that his reality is not his reality. So with that, I would like to thank both you, Richard, and you, Amanda, for being a guest on my show. Thank you for having us. We had a good time. Well, at least I did. <laughs> yes, thank you. I had, a, I had a great time. 